Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. On Commons People this week, COVID Christmas looms. Have yourselves a merry little Christmas. I'm, I'm afraid this year I do mean little. Will Brexit spoil it too? As things stand, I cannot tell you whether there will be a deal or not. And what awaits in 2021? I would be surprised and delighted if we weren't in this current situation through the winter. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul Warth. Hi Arj. Hi Paul. Rachel Wearmouth here. Hi Arj. Hi Rachel and the Conservative MP for North East Derbyshire joins us. It's Lee Rowley. Well, Christmas is around the corner, but it's going to be like any other we've ever experienced. And arguably, it's not been helped by a government forced to partially row back on plans to allow families to get together amid a spike in coronavirus cases. The law still says three households can form a bubble for five days, but the government is now stressing that people should not do the maximum allowed. Meanwhile, the first review of the latest COVID tiers has failed to provide respite from tough restrictions for northern cities like Manchester and Leeds. Let's hear Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty explaining the change in the Christmas guidance. There really are, in addition to the standard rules that, and guidance that has been there for the whole time in all four nations of the UK, but certainly here in England, uh, the guidance here, the tiering guidance the Prime Minister talked about, there are essentially four things to think about that are specific uh, to the festive season over Christmas, as indeed to all the other major religious festivals, Hanukkah, for example, at the moment, previously Diwali and Eid. Paul, there has been some praise for the government this morning on what they're doing on Christmas, but um, have they got it right? Well, I think overall, they got there in the end, as they say, didn't they? Um, You know, the question is, I think the message is roughly right now, which is, you know, don't be ridiculous, um, don't push it to the maximum, try and keep it local, try and protect your relatives and try and do a bit of isolating before you see them. Um, So they've got there, but it's just a shame that that message now is a bit last minute. And you could you could argue it both ways. Look, if they'd been much clearer about this like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, um, then everyone would really know where they stand and they wouldn't have had to waste Christmas bookings and things like that. Or you could argue actually, well, you know, the caseload has just rocketed so much in the last few days that actually in weeks that actually it would have been difficult to to sort of anticipate that. I mean, some critics say you could clearly have anticipated that. But um, to be, look at Wales, you know, Wales has taken off in such a massive way and very few people did actually think that that was going to be as severe as it has been. So, you know, I think on the whole, I think you've got to cut them a bit of slack. And I think most of the public throughout this crisis have cut the government a bit of slack and as if the messaging now is consistent and if the if there's lots of tv ads and radio ads ramming home that this is going to be a small local christmas then i think it might work but you've got to say chris witty looked incredibly nervous because he and other people in the nhs i've talked to a few people in senior posts in the nhs in recent days are really really worried and you know They'd prefer the very, the most minimum in terms of the law, in terms of just having 
two households mixing maximum and maybe one of those extra as in Wales being a, a single person so I think that's what they'd really like in the NHS but they realize it's gone too far and they can't really do that now for for England so we'll see I mean the impact on the new year figures could be could be grim but then the fact that people are not in school not at work may really counterbalance that so it's a it's going to be really difficult I suspect we'll end up no matter what the tears are I suspect everyone will end up in some sort of fresh national lockdown in January and um I think maybe the public get that. They may, there's a bit of a trade-off. We'll have to see. Yeah, Lee, what, what do you think of the government's handling of Christmas and this tension between the law and guidance? I think we're trying to treat the public like grown-ups and there's always a, a, there's always a, um, a balance to be struck here in terms of the rules and in terms of personal responsibility versus what the state should mandate or advise. And it's a very difficult balance to strike, which has been basically the entire story since... Uh, the spring and we've been at different parts on that continuum throughout. I think that the the particular challenge with Christmas is a one of compliance. If we'd have put our, if we'd have put put the finger on the scales in a particular place, which was extremely, uh, extremely rigorous, I think there would have been an issue about people just not being willing to do that. And so we've got to try and find our way through a very challenging and a very difficult time. I think the government is broadly correct to say, you know, we, we're going through a very difficult period. It's likely to be difficult, whatever happens in January or February. But for this very time limited period, you are able to do more, but use that very cautiously and very wisely and don't necessarily take it to the to the extent. I mean, I remember the day that the Christmas restrictions were announced. I was watching ITV News and there was a lady in Manchester who was literally there with her arms in the air going, I can see all my relatives and I can hug them, which is exactly not what the purpose is. But I think most people get that that's not the point. And some of the tightening about the the advice, you know, the, the, the recommendation, it's ultimately for people to make decisions about their lives and about what they do or don't do and the risk that they are or aren't willing to to take, but um, I think the tightening of the recommendations, the caution that's been injected in the last 24, 48 hours will really make people think about how they should approach it. It's make, making me and a lot of people I know think of the same as well. Yeah, and Lee, a lot of Tory MPs have been calling for this kind of approach to, to allow people to exercise more personal responsibility. Do you think that could be extended into other areas of the government's COVID strategy after Christmas, for example, on the restrictions or any fresh lockdown, do you think they could take a lighter touch approach in the law? I think, I think this is a really interesting issue and one that has real life impacts, right? I mean, it's all, I was about to say, this is a really interesting philosophical discussion that we can have about the role of the state and the extent of personal responsibility and the like, but it does impact my constituents every single day in Northeast Derbyshire. And that's one of the reasons why this isn't just some kind of academic cloistered debate it's about what's happening with the pubs in the shops in the workplaces and in the leisure leisure areas in in Eckington or Kilimarshall or Drumfield which I represent but but if you go back to that sort of philosophical first principle I mean I'm a I'm a libertarian and I start with quite libertarian instincts the reason I'm in my party is because I I think generally people can make decisions better than the state can in many instances and that's one of the reasons that I got into into this place um but Ultimately, there are times when even myself, as somebody who is on the right of the Conservative Party and who is pretty instinctively trusting of people to take the right decisions, 
recognises where the state has to be bigger than we are comfortable with, recognise where there has to be more rules than we necessarily would like. And I think the two obvious examples are wars and pandemics. The freedom comes with a right to do as we choose, but a responsibility not to exercise it in a way where we are irresponsible or take freedom away from others. And that's a very difficult discussion to have, but one which has been brought to the fore in the last nine months before we even talk about the direct impacts on people's lives and businesses and jobs and everything else. And do you think you and colleagues might be in a slightly different place on that if the vaccine wasn't so close? Does the vaccine being close kind of make it easier to say, okay, we can temporarily give up more freedoms than perhaps we might be be up for? It, it does. I can only speak on a personal basis, but it does does for me. I mean, the, the government's the government strategy throughout. When you stand back, when you get away from the day to day froth and all the rest of it, has been suppress the virus until a solution comes along, and try to allow maximum economic activity to be undertaken within the realms of what is possible. And that's why things have moved around quite a lot because we're trying to maximise the activity that can happen whilst we wait for the solution. The solution is now here, thankfully. And you know when, when it when it was announced a few weeks ago, it did change the the calculus, the prospectus, which you know I, I analysed it with, and a, lot, a number of my colleagues did. You know, ultimately the the suppression tap, you know, suppression only works if you have an endpoint, and and now we have an endpoint. It validates the purpose of suppression, but there was always a challenge, chance that there was no endpoint, and therefore at some point there would have to have been a bigger discussion about that suppression strategy. I'm so glad that we've managed to get to that place and we now have upwards of 150,000 people who are going through this process to be ramped up more and more um, and the vaccine to get out there to a point where we can get back to our daily lives. But it, it, was, it was a calculated risk that the government took and thanks to the beauty of modern science, we, it looks as though it's paid off and that's great, but there's still this last very hard yard to go, which will take another few months yet. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that's been going on uh, has been the first review of the new tougher tiers that were brought in after the autumn lockdown. Rachel, you've been watching the tiers announcement today. There was some hope and even expectation that places like Manchester, possibly even Leeds might get downgraded from tier three to two, but they haven't. Um, what was the government's reason for that? And and how's it gone down? Um, well, as, as, as you might expect, Andy Burnham's very, very much not happy about um, the about Manchester not going down to tier two. Um, but he sort of gave some interviews this morning where he said he was had less expectation that that might happen. But just looking at the announcement, it just there's not really anybody who's happy. I mean, Bristol and North Somerset, they were lowered to tier two and Herefordshire went to tier one. Uh, Matt Hancock has said that um, he's, he's going to be publishing some regional data packs that will drill down into exactly why that he's made the decisions he has um, but there, there are some there are, there's the odd winner including um the former health secretary's uh, own constituency jeremy hunt's constituency is it's just his part of um southwest surrey is pretty much uh, the only part of surrey that's escaping and um, escaping tier tier three and paul paul mentioned before that um there may be some kind of third national lockdown in in january and that was asked about at the um the lobby briefing call earlier this morning and Downing Street couldn't rule it out. Yeah. I think the real the real problem with this is that um, um, places have been sort of, you know, under pressure for a long time, whether it's Greater Manchester, whether it's Leeds uh, and West Yorkshire, whether it's the Northeast, whether it's Leicester, you know, they've been in, they've been suffering for a long, long time, the businesses as well as uh, the individuals. 
and what might really concern people is that you know on monday i remember hearing in answer to hillary benn who represents leeds um matt hancock was asked by hillary benn he said look surely the whole credibility of this tiered system and it goes to, to lee's point about personal responsibility and whether or not people have confidence in the system this tiered system depends on the efforts individuals make to get the numbers down is what hillary benn said and he said leeds has done a great job can you and, and he said to hancock the credibility of that statement needs to be reflected in decisions when the areas are put in when they show a dramatic reduction and hancock replied the honorable gentleman made a typically wise intervention ahead of decision making on wednesday so it, the clear hint was yeah leeds has done everything it needed to yeah you've got a dramatic reduction yeah you need to be rewarded and the system works today i think a lot of people might be thinking well is, what's the system all about? It doesn't seem to work. What do? What more do we need to do? Of course, you know that in the last couple of days, it might be that Leeds's cases have just plateaued, and and Hancock's really fearful for that as well as Christmas. But you know, giving that false hope might have been a bit damaging. I think one of the problems with the tiered system is just how it's decided. Because it's decided using five criteria: so an analysis of cases among all age groups, analysis of cases among the over sixties or people who are more vulnerable, the R rate. Um, cases per, per thousand of the local population and projected pressure on local NHS services. I think it's only got to be a matter of time before um, uh, ministers or MPs start looking at just how much existing health inequalities are contributing to how people end up, which areas end up in which tiers, you know. Cause so they're they are behind their back already, a lot of those areas, yeah. 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 yeah Lee, are you, what do you make of the tiers announcement today, Lee? It, it looks like there's a conveyor belt to tier three. And then even if you get cases down, you're not coming out of it. Well, on my patch, uh, Derbyshire and North East Derbyshire went into tier two before the national lockdown. And then uh, it's been in tier three since the loosening of restrictions. And, you know, obviously on a local level, when I go home tonight from parliament and go back up north, I, I wanted uh, on Saturday for pubs to reopen and for, for us to go down to tier two. That hasn't happened. And it's obviously disappointing, frustrating, it's really challenging and people are you know, extremely frustrated by, by that and the impact it's having on their day-to-day lives, on their day-to-day lives. The, the challenge though is, is the data and I, I, I was writing a social media, I mean media post this morning for, 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 my, for my constituents and it's amazing, I would have never thought this time last year we would have been doing essays on where you know the exponential nature of the curves are and, and all the like but people really really like the fact that we have the opportunity to go through that data and they're really engaging in it all and the, 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 you know Derbyshire is a great example of some of the things that Paul was just highlighting cases were higher two and a half weeks ago when the initial decision was made they've come down which is good so the obvious question is why haven't we moved down a tier but then when you start on picking it cases went right down and have now gone back up again so we're on a rise again and it does seem in in the hospitals that you are you aren't getting the base number of beds with people who are ill from coronavirus down to the extent that you would hope to. So you've got this new baseline almost built into local hospital services, which means that there just isn't the space if it if it takes off again. And, and even talking about that sounds very clinical when actually these are real people who are going through extremely difficult times. In my local hospital, the Royal in Derbyshire, we have the Royal in Chesterfield, we have a meeting with chief exec every few weeks and you know it's something which we can't ignore so uh, you know from a I was hopeful of going down to tier two but I wasn't surprised when we didn't and I think that's what 
a lot of people around my patch and elsewhere in tier three will will understand because if if the data is pointing in a particular direction there's no point as trying to dress it up in another way which suggests everything will be okay because it just stores up a problem for the next few months next few weeks lee for an area like manchester they've basically been in tier three or lockdown or something like that for about six months if not more and they have got cases down do you not think that the government would have been a bit wiser to say, okay, well done, you know, our own tier system works, you've proven it, we'll take you down to tier two. Well, some of that's happened, right? I mean, Liverpool went down to tier two. We've seen some very slight changes today, Bath and North Somerset, which I'm, you know, I congratulate them for, for doing that and Herefordshire as well. But obviously there is still sufficient challenge elsewhere in the country for that not to happen. I mean, my, my experience of what is going on here and when, when I talk to ministers and talk to a lot of ministers and advisors and, and, and experts over the last couple of weeks to try and highlight the importance of the tiering being looked at for my patch and I've seen other MPs do the same. When I talk to them, there is no desire to keep people in in these higher tiers any minute longer than is necessary. It, it, you know, we, we're totally cognizant of the, the real impacts on people's day-to-day lives, but also the challenge it just creates. I mean, I'll, I'll go home this week this weekend to 300 emails, which I, I, I will sit and respond to on the basis of people being extremely frustrated about it. So, it's, I mean, I don't want to hide from it, but even if you did, it, was, it would be very difficult to as a, as a constituency MP. But, you know, the... the I, I, Politics is not all about data. Politics is, is also about what people feel and it's also about their, what, what people see and it's about pe- what people experience. And so and MPs can never forget that. But in a time of pandemic where we're trying to do this incredibly challenging balancing act, if, if the information, if the data, which is just a reflection of what's happening in our hospitals and on the ground, if that is in the wrong place, I think most people do understand that that is why we aren't able to move at this current time, whether it be in Manchester, Derbyshire or elsewhere, much as we want to. Right, we must move on. Uh, well, the Commons is breaking up for Christmas today, but MPs have been put on notice that they could be recalled to vote on a Brexit deal during the festive period. Negotiations with the EU continue and hopes of a deal are growing amid reports that the UK has agreed to some of Brussels' demands on a so-called level playing field on standards. Fishing rights remain a difficult issue, but Boris Johnson has dropped his suggestion that no deal was, quotes, very likely. And Ursula von der Leyen is beginning to sound slightly more optimistic. Let's have a listen to her. As things stand, I cannot tell you whether there will be a deal or not. But I can tell you that there is a path to an agreement now. The path may be very narrow. But it is there. On fisheries, the discussion is still very difficult. We do not question the UK sovereignty on its own waters. But we ask for predictability and stability for our fishermen and our fisherwomen. And in all honesty, it sometimes feels that we will not be able to resolve this question. But we must continue to find to try finding a solution. And it is the only responsible and right course of action. Honorable members, the next days are going to be decisive. And I know I have said this before. And I know deadlines have been missed time and again. As in the past, 
we must all walk these last miles in the same shoes. Thank you so much and long live Europe. Uh, Paul, deal's close now, isn't it? Or is Boris Johnson going to blow this up over fish? Well, we've been saying this for a while on the podcast, haven't we? That um, uh, we might be foolish, we might be, you know, a um, bit too brave, but I, we've always said we think there'll be a deal. And the reason for that, and I think it's now, it is looking sort of 60-40, um, still the 60 really matters, because I think it's just not in anyone's interest, either side's interest to have no deal. It just clearly isn't. And the gap isn't enormous, despite all the rhetoric on both sides. It really isn't. You know that when they're in that negotiating room, that actually they're trying to work out some kind of legalistic wording that will get them out of the problem and that both sides really want to have some kind of deal and it sounds like they're actually doing what negotiators do which is you know hammer out compromise and whether it's on fish or whether it's on level playing field there is um there is definitely this awful phrase of landing zone and it sounds like in fish for example you know we we started off with um an, an insistence that actually there the should be a, a transition period that should be very short uh, and they of uh, three years and the you wanted one of 10 years and it may well be we end up with five or six years and you know both sides can say well we've we've given a bit and we've got a lot out of it we you know it's worth it um, and we haven't given up on our principles but actually in practice of it you know we, we can live with it and i suspect that, that what cheered me i suppose in the last 48 hours was that it seems as though that the level playing field issue had gone quiet uh, and that was the biggest one of all because fishy i think really you could sort out level playing field seemed a bit more substantial um but now again given that i think there was a perfect opportunity by um seeing all these reports that the eu had gone for this hardline ratchet clause that actually uh, many people didn't think that was really going to happen anyway and it was just the eu trying it on and and i think it's helped the government in a way that um that that narrative has run because then with the eu always likely to not go ahead with ratchet clause to have some sort of reciprocity about you know how this deal is uh, independently arbitrated we can live with that and we can say they've climbed down and as long as we can say they've climbed down then boris johnson can say yeah actually this is a deal worth having so i think we're in that place but obviously the talks are still going on you'd be daft to say it was certain um but it's it's looking quite good. What to me the most interesting thing was the way the PM didn't raise it and didn't push it in PMQs. He clearly knew there's no point really, really um, being provocative. Um, he put down his red lines and he didn't have to push them any further. And so we're now in the normal tunnel style sort of silence, which there should be. Lee, have you had any indication from the whips about Christmas sittings in the Commons? <laughs> nothing, nothing yet. If we, if we have to come back, we have to come back. Uh, we can Christmas the, Day? We can bring the holly and the Christmas tree into the office. So, <laughs> um, but no, no, nothing yet. I mean, it, it's you know, this is an extraordinary year in many instances, and this is one of those. And if we have to come back and do some additional work, then we have to do that because it's in everybody's interest to try and find a way through here. And the ideal way through would be a deal, if one can be found. Yeah, um, I, I know you need you obviously need to see the detail of any deal, but we sort of know the broad area, the landing zone, as Paul called it, where this might land. So some agreement to uh, kind of manage divergence rather than alignment on standards. So if we undercut EU standards, they can impose tariffs on us. That looks like it's going to happen and we'll have the right to do the same, vice versa. And it looks like there'll probably be some kind of transition for fish. Um, 
you're you're a lever. Would you be happy with that, along with everything else we kind of know is going to be in the deal, tariff-free, tariff-free quota-free access to the single market, but um, broad control over all the things we want to take back control over? When I, first, when I first got here, an old Tory MP said to me, never deal in hypotheticals. So I'm going to dodge <laughs> your question by not dealing hypotheticals. But to, to try and answer it to some extent, I mean, I, I, I voted leave. I rejected the May uh, the May deal three on three separate occasions and was quite robust in the previous parliament on my views about Brexit. But it, it does not mean that I basically want to saw Britain off and just drift off into the, into the Atlantic. We need a strong relationship with our with our European friends, just as we do with everyone else around the world. And in particular, because of the geographical proximity, we need to try and do that. And I hope notwithstanding the, the, the process, which was always likely to be inevitable, where we went to a, a little bit longer than we wanted to in this in this negotiation, we got a little bit too close to the to the end point, you know, that, that was always very likely with the EU. But, but we hoped we could get it. And I still hope we can do that, and there is a pragmatism that needs to be in there, and which myself, as somebody who's a lever, uh, is willing to do, and a spirit of cooperation, a spirit of friendship, but a recognition that there are some red lines, and we have some red lines, and there is a space in between there to find a deal, and if we can do that, great, and if not, let's just let's just get going anyway, not 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 diminishing the the impact of that, but I think the four and a half years later, we have to we have to make a decision here. I, I really hope we can. Get a decision. It's good they're still talking. We'll be clear in the next few days. And absolutely, there, there, there needs to be a spirit of pragmatism within the overall accepted framework, which um, respects the spirit of the 2016 referendum. Given the tight timescale, could you live with a kind of one-month extension just for ratification? I, I don't know about that. I mean, I think the the reality is we've been talking about this for an awfully long period of time. M- most of us in in this place in the Commons know roughly where the things are that are acceptable and unacceptable. It's amazing what people can do when they have a deadline. So if we get to that point, let's see what uh, if the deadline focuses mind. I would really be very keen to try and wrap this up as much as possible, um, you know, if one comes, so that everybody has certainty and we can move on. I mean, I'm not going to get too worried about, you know, days here or there, but I don't think we can move demonstrably away from the from the deadline which is in place. Lee, would you be happy to have a sort of provisional approach that someone talking about that that a provisional deal is agreed by both sides and then the small print is done by the legislatures sort of in the new year? In other words, the European Council passes it as a provisional agreement and so does the House of Commons provisionally uh, with what a simple vote. And then the actual legislation you can go through maybe in January. Would, would that work? I mean, I, I'll defer to, 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 to on that level of detail. I would probably need to see what came out of the discussion and see what the recommendation of the government was, because we know that there are different types of detail, right? Without starting to to sort of um, get into a definitional discussion, but there's detail which is, you know, just process or you know, not non-material, and then there is detail where we've just seen a detail issue for the last 11 months on the Northern Ireland Protocol, which took quite a while to iron out. So my, my preference is to try and get this boxed off. We'll, you know, I hope we can, I still hope we can do that even at this late stage. And you, you famously told Theresa May, stamina is not a strategy in that, that cutting remark that almost that everyone said basically was the beginning of the end. Um, so it's clear that for you, a hard deadline really works, doesn't it? You can't just keep going on and on and on. Yeah, I mean, I had a business forum this morning with 
people from my from my constituency and and you know there, there's a broad range of views in there there's remainers leavers and people who are indifferent but the big message that came through to me both from a covid and a brexit perspective was the requirement for certainty and i think in 2021 there is a need to try and bring certainty and part of that is by solving these sovereignty discussions which have been bedeviling us for four and a half years plus in terms directly and many decades indirectly before that and then work on ensuring that people businesses organizations groups communities have the opportunity and clarity and the certainty to know what's coming in 2021. Lee can I ask you one more on this which is the ERG and, and the real hardline Eurosceptics in, in the Tory party seem a bit quieter this time than they were in the lead up to the end of maybe other negotiations. It, behind the scenes are people from that wing of the party concerned about what might be getting dealt over the table in Brussels? Or do you think actually people are a bit more kind of calm with the stuff that's leaking out and kind of feel like they're they're probably on the way to at least being able to give this a fair wind? Well, there's always a great deal of focus on these things because it's incredibly important. There's a lot of people in this place who have dedicated much of their careers for the principles which they believe in. So there's a huge amount of focus on it. Um, I think that there is a there is a recognition, as, as I have, that we're here to try and strike a deal in the same way that compromise and pragmatism is going to be required with with improving our deal with Canada or getting a deal with Australia or New Zealand. The same approach needs to be with the EU. So this isn't an absolutist, you know, um, um, binary proposition. There's a, there's a there's a back and forth here. But also, I think the challenge, speaking personally, in the previous Parliament was that throughout the negotiation discussions, we never really got the feeling, rightly or wrongly, that the negotiators on the British side were really pushing a number of the things which we felt were important. Throughout this, Lord Frost has been very clear and has given people comfort that he is clear on what the lines are, he's clear on what his mandate is, and he's gone in and, and, and negotiated on that basis. So there is a the process has given greater comfort as a result of that. We need to see what the output is, if there is one, but I think the process has been more comfortable for us this time so far. Yeah, uh, Rachel, whatever happens with um, Tory leavers and whether they back the deal or not, do we think it's likely to get through on Labour votes? Um, well, it seems like that Labour just will not vote against it at this stage. That just seems like it's not an option for them. That there is um, there is a way that the, there is a school of thought in the party that thinks that they should abstain, um, and that's kind of based on the fact that they think that a lot of Leavers really had a chance to take out their anger at the last um, last general election, and they don't. Um, this a view that's also been sort of put forward by people like Neil Kinnock is that. If Brexit is really has this massive impact on the economy, Labour shouldn't um, shouldn't be seen to have voted for it because they don't they don't want to sort of be don't want to have dipped their hands in the blood if you like. Um, but it seems at this point that it would be much much more of a story if they didn't vote for the deal. And I think um, you know I mean people like Ed Miliband have said that Keir Starmer's minded to back it. And I think just because of these time constraints and that the alternative really could be no deal, I don't see any circumstances now in which um, Keir Starmer and Labour wouldn't vote for it. Yeah, Lee, voters in your seat, which is a kind of red wall, you were the red wall pioneer, I think we've said that before on this podcast. How do you think they'll respond to Labour, well, A, backing a deal or B, abstaining on a deal? Do you think they'll see that and go, oh, okay, Labour have learned their lessons and maybe I can vote for them again? Or do you think they'll kind of 
the, the water's passed under the bridge for Labour on Brexit. I think it's probably closer to the, the second than the first. I mean, we'll, we'll have to see, um, and it depends what Starmer does, but one vote, even if they do decide not to oppose it in some ways, one vote is not going to solve the best part of four and a half years trying to frustrate the decisions that 63% of people in my patch made and the vast majority in the North and the, the Midlands did. The Labour Party have got a long-term challenge in seats like mine. I come from a Labour family. So the question is, why am I sat here as a Conservative? I sit here as a Conservative because I think that the centre-right ideology, the Conservative Party, broadly delivers more for communities like the one I grew up in than the Labour Party does. And I think that is a longer-term issue that they have in seats like mine. And whilst I you know, will never take anything for granted and will always try to work extremely hard for my constituents, I think there is a shift that's gone on away from uh, a Labour Party which had my my, my my aunt delivering leaflets for them in the 80s and yet her nephew is now completely on the other side and would never even countenance the ideas that they put forward. There's a huge disconnect there that one, but one vote will not bridge, I'm afraid. Yeah, interesting. Well, since this is the last podcast of 2020... Yay! You <laughs> meant to sound sad, Paul. Uh, there's no better time to look back. <laughs> there's no better time to look back over what's been a truly terrible year. Uh, dominated by coronavirus and Brexit, there is unlikely to be another 12 months like it for a very long time. But will 2021 bring respite for the British public and also Boris Johnson, who's had a torrid time of it? Let's just listen to the PM reflecting on this year. Mr Speaker, 2020 has been in many ways a tragic year when so many have lost loved ones and faced financial ruin. And this will be still a hard winter. Christmas cannot be normal and there's a, a long road to, to spring, but we have turned a corner and the escape route is in sight. We must hold out against the virus until testing and vaccines come to our rescue and reduce the need for restrictions. And everyone can help speed up the arrival of that moment by continuing to follow the rules, getting tested and self-isolating when instructed, remembering hands, face, space, and pulling together for one final push to the spring when we have every reason to hope and believe that the achievements of our scientists will finally lift the shadow of this virus. And Mr Speaker, I commend this statement to the House. Uh, Paul, you've done an audit of the government's performance this year, and it's not massively pretty reading for Boris Johnson. How has it been, and can he, can he turn it round? Well, obviously, um, as I said earlier, a lot of the public cut him a lot of slack because of uh, the pandemic, um, which every country across Europe is having to deal with. And I think actually, in a strange way, the fact that Germany now is really beginning to suffer, South Korea is beginning to suffer, a lot of those early successes in the in the pandemic fight uh, are now, those countries are, are struggling, helps him say, look, this really is a global crisis and everyone's had to deal with it. And yes, we've got some of the highest death rates, um, uh, but we've done our best to try and ameliorate it. I mean, it would be good for him if he sort of was a bit more honest about just how bad the figures are here and to try and say, well, we want to step back from it and say, yes, they are bad, but what are the reasons for them being bad? Is it because we're an open economy, more open than the rest of Europe, for example? Is it because we're a more unequal economy than the rest of Europe? I mean, both those things might be just the basic structural reasons why the UK is worse than the rest of Europe and why the US is worse than the rest of much of the planet. Open economies, 
unequal economies, um, you know, maybe the maybe something just basic about that uh, above and beyond the healthcare system and how prepared they are or, or how well funded they are and how how good your testing is. But um, this, so as I say, COVID obviously you know skews the whole year. But what we tried to do in that look at the year was just how he'd cope above and beyond that. And obviously Brexit is another massive issue. Uh, but governments can you know walk and chew gum at the time at the same time. So as they keep telling us, they can do lots of other things. They can do Brexit and deal with the pandemic. Can they do, for example, public service reform? Uh, it seemed that when I was talking to quite a few people on that, um, you know, the big gaping hole is still social care this massive generational shift um which um needs a lot more thought the pm talked about it on the steps number 10 but actually we've seen very very little meat on the bones the good news is on the greening of the environment uh greening of the economy um this idea of building back greener i think he's made some major progress late in the year on that in terms of setting out some targets again we need some flesh on the bones a lot of people are saying well how do you get there you've set the targets but those targets are really interesting and as we've discussed before on the podcast um you know you should not make a, a patronizing assumption that people in red wall seats aren't keen on green jobs uh when they could really benefit from skilled green jobs and it depends how that policy rolls out so the, the other big picture things are obviously on public services you know he promised a certain number of nhs nurses he's promised a certain number of cops on the beat uh, they've made progress on both of those there's no question and i think you'd be foolish to deny that but as someone said to me you know and, and Lee will probably agree with this as a as a as a as a conservative in principle, which is you could turn on the taps and spend the money uh, and hire the people. That's in a way the easy bit. The hard bit is, you know, how do you build an economy that um, is entrepreneurial? How do you make sure that public services work above and beyond just hiring people? Uh, and you know, thorny issues like how do you fund sustainably social care? That they're, they're the sort of big things that really governments should be grappling with and wanting to grapple with. Yeah, Lee. I mean, assuming the vaccine rollout goes well, attention in 2021, I suppose, will turn towards fixing the economy, which has been ravaged by COVID and the public finances. How do you think we do that? And are tax rises inevitable next year? Do you think? You're right that this is now the, the key focus and one that's um, making the huge assumption that the vaccine rollout will solve the broader problem, which is still an assumption, probably a very good one, but still that's an assumption at this stage. But that the, we, we will need to go back to how we rebuild the economy. And the key point there will be, one, getting growth back going again. We need that recovery coming back as quickly as we possibly can. They are real people's jobs and real people's livelihoods and real people's lives that are effective without, without jobs. The second thing would be, as Paul was saying, to make sure that that spirit of entrepreneurship, which was unleashed in the 80s and has been burning bright since, is, it continues because we know that some people who have, you know, went out, set their own business up, um, took the risk. We know that they have had real challenges in the last year and it's trying to support people to do that. The, the, uh, in terms of the wider macroeconomic and fiscal picture, I mean, I, I don't know what where we will be next year but the best way to minimize the need for for very hard choices is to try and get growth going again which i know the government is very keen to do and the more successful economies over the long term tend to be lesser taxed economies and that is some a principle which we always need to to return to so i hope that we can find a way through there which both repairs the public finances which is vital for our children our children's children but at the same time make sure that we can turbocharge the growth that we need to 
to get things going again, you know, in the next two, three, four months when we can properly start to emerge from this challenge. It's interesting that literally breaking news in the middle of the podcast, uh, Rishi Sunak has just extended the furlough scheme to the end of April from the end of March. So he was obviously very worried about the cliff edge that was coming um, very soon in terms of redundancy notices. And he's acted on that. Um, I take it that's the kind of thing that you want to see more of, Lee? Or are you, are you worried that actually that will keep having to do that month on month, keep extending it? I think at this early, sta- at this early stage in, in the solution, uh, in, the, in, in, in the vaccine going out, it is absolutely, you know, the imperative of government has to be that we smooth the path for businesses to be able to get back to normal and to re-establish viability. And there are hundreds of thousands of businesses out there which are temporarily challenged, which we need to try and help people to get through. So I think what Rishi has just done is a very sensible thing. There will come a point where the balance of risk switches where it moves from being a need to help people through this which will be the first part of the year to a need to trying to make sure that people can stand on their own two feet again trying to make sure that the public finances get back in order so there are no long-term problems there where that switch occurs is is obviously not something we can decide in december and it's going to be a difficult one and there will be difficult choices around it but it's one we absolutely need to do because we need to, that's, that's the long-term way to keep the economy going and get it going even quicker. You know, furlough will need to come to an end and that there will be challenging conversations about when that is. But until we get the vaccine out there properly, furlough should help people bridge that. Since we've got some live breaking news, just quickly, um, <laughs> do, do, does this concern, concern you that, you know, furlough usually goes hand in hand with restrictions. Does this concern you that restrictions are going to continue a bit longer than we thought? I don't. I mean, I, I probably should have a better politician's answer than this, but I don't. I don't know how to answer that because a lot of the a lot of what we've seen over the last nine months has been a very fast changing situation. So in some ways, we 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 can only really plan properly for the next few weeks, which is hugely frustrating. Whilst trying to create a framework where we have enough flexibility for the months to come. So, you know, if we if the vaccine rollout goes well, as I'm sure it will, if we have a mild winter, if we don't have a particularly large issue with other respiratory viruses, it may be that we can move back closer to normal earlier than elsewhere. If we get into a, you know, a, a minus 20 degrees for most of January, February and March, that is likely to cause um, greater challenges. So I, I don't know is the honest answer, Arj, but it seems it seems reasonable to create a framework and to give people the certainty that if something is needed, it will be there for a little bit longer, even in the hope that we may not have to use it, which is what I think Rishi, or without any knowledge of not having read it, but what I assume is Rishi's, is Rishi's principle behind what he's doing. Yeah, and Rachel, what about Keir Starmer? What does he need to do next year to build on the progress Labour have made in 2020? Um, have some policy. <laughs> you know, I think this is kind of, he just hasn't really, hasn't really owned any issue yet. You know, the last year has been about positioning and his biggest sort of achievement and is advertising just how much he is not Jeremy Corbyn over the last 12 months. Because you've got to remember, it's been um, one year since Labour had one of its biggest ever defeats and it's been about you know recovering from that being seen as um uh, sort of constructive opposition rather than um one that's much further to the left um and he but he's yet to really break through on any other any other issue and i think the frustration with that you know he's ab- abstained on a lot of the key issues which i think some of some people within the labor party have found frustrating but that impression is also starting to reach the public 
Um, and I think he really needs to start taking some some positions that he can say are really his rather than in the middle. Yeah, indeed. And I mean, any, anyone else want to just give us a very, very short, sharp key thing to look out for next year? I really do think that the green stuff is well worth watching because, you know, everyone forgets that um, Boris Johnson basically is going to be a, on the global stage in a series of events next year. We're hosting the G7 Summit. We're, we're chairing the UN um, uh, Security Council. And also, crucially, at the end of the year, we're going to be chairing this COP climate change talks. And the eyes of the world are going to be on the UK in Glasgow. Um, and... Um, Obviously, Nicola Sturgeon might have some something to say about uh, her own role and all of that. But yeah. globally speaking, if we can show that a Western economy can switch to a, a greener economy, and if we can, if with the Biden administration and the EU and China all now coming up with net zero targets, there is actually something that um, the the government can say: Look, post Brexit, Britain is is still a force on the global stage uh, we're leading by example and we're actually convening people and you never know glasgow um 2021 may be a date that people remember for quite a few years i mean you know in terms of the big picture in terms of my kids your kids your grandkids you know they might look back on 2021 as being a, a pivotal year that's the prize i don't know whether it's going to happen but that's the prize uh, i think the glasgow will be uh, extremely important in that broader approach to climate change and, and treading more lightly on our on our world and leaving in a better place for our kids the, the, the thing for me which will be interesting about 2021 is what we learn from the extremely challenging and difficult time that we've gone through and that's an interesting political question i mean the one thing that it's reaffirmed to me is we, we've gone through a very difficult time people who work extremely hard and i'm extremely grateful for them but much for what they've done but much of the discussion over the last nine months has been about where rules don't seem to work very well where there are challenges where there are tensions and all the rest of it that was reasonable in a pandemic when we were trying to move very quickly to try and to try and really deal with something that was literally life and death i hope that we learn from some of these things which highlights that when we have for example too many rules that when we have lots of activity that it creates unintended consequences and unintended consequences is the thing which we deal so badly with in the political debate as a whole over many generations and if we can learn a little bit from the terrible place that we've been just to make our political debate a little bit stronger in that regard i think that would be helpful but you know politicians are not that renowned for learning from, uh, from what has happened we will see well on that note i'm going to test your knowledge from what you've learned from the year because it's oh. time for the quiz a very hey. short quiz of the year uh just shout the answer if you know it um who was the first mp to test positive for coronavirus and why was it especially interesting was it matt hancock no nadine doris was it nadine yeah Dorries? well done that's because hey, she'd good. been it's because she'd been with so many other um, ministers, hadn't it? You know, had, had been had met with so many other ministers. That's brilliant. Well done, because she, <laughs> her office is right next to our parliamentary office. And there was this massive big sort of hazard thing stripped all over her door saying, do not enter. <laughs> I yeah, I can't believe you didn't get that, Paul, because I remember going into your office and, and there it was. Uh, yeah, Nadine Dory's office kind picture. of quarantined off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like um, an Agatha Christie crime scene. Yeah, <laughs> it really was actually yeah. slightly terrifying. Um, right, question number two. 
Who was the first minister, well, the first shadow minister to leave Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet and who were they replaced by? Oh, was it Long Bailey? Yes. Well done. Replaced by Kate Green. Well done. Herself become a bit controversial, shall we say? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll give you one point for that. Um, so it's one all, Paul, Rachel. Uh, Lee can draw it or Paul and Rachel can snatch the win. This is a hard one. Um, Ursula von der Leyen took over as European Commission President from Jean-Claude Juncker about a year ago. She was a minister in Angela Merkel's government. But where is von der Leyen from originally? Do you oh care? God, no idea. Did you say um, the UK? She spent a lot of time here, though, isn't she? She's an Anglophile. Um, no, she, she spent her parents lived in, in Brussels and her parents knew Boris Johnson's because they worked together. They were both Eurocrats, Stanley Johnson and von der Leyen's mum and dad. They spent time in the same school or kindergarten yeah, in, in Brussels. I'll, I'll give you that because that's great knowledge. And yeah, she was born in Brussels. So I'll give ah, you the, give you the point. And congrats, Paul, you've won the final quiz. Lee, oh, pitiful zero. Terrible, Rachel, <laughs> Rachel, close with one. Next time, Lee, next time. <laughs> Um, unfortunately that's all we have time for this week thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels and please be sure to leave a review and get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone we hope all of you have a great Christmas but if you're telling jokes over your turkey please try to make them better than this from Red Car MP Jacob Young Madam Deputy Speaker, the Secretary of State can make my wish come true because all I want for Christmas is tier two. Yeah. <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.